Welcome to Behavior Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson, and this is the podcast where we explore human behavior through a behavioral science lens. And I'm Tim Houlihan. If curiosity about human nature is your thing, then Behavioral Grooves is your podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds silly, doesn't it? But yeah, it is. In this episode, we explore the importance of conversation in our lives. And we do that with Chuck Wisner, the author of The Art of Conscious Conversations. The book takes a deep dive into the DNA of conversations, exploring the components and complexities of talking with others. His insights are built on a fascinating mix of careers, from an architect to personal coach, with a stop-off as a mediator at the Harvard Law Mediation Program. Chuck combines a scholarly knowledge of conversation with years of real-world applications, and for Kurt and me, it reminded us how incredibly important conversation is. You know, that, that thing that we do when we explore ideas, or we share personal stories, or we learn something from other people by talking to them. <laughs> You mean not just texting or emailing or, I don't know, YouTubing, whatever, whatever those kids do today, you know, talking with other people. What an interesting concept, Tim. Okay. All right. Seriously, it's something that we've been big on since we heard Kwame Christian tell us about compassionate curiosity back in episode 178. And according to Kwame, compassionate curiosity is the foundation for learning and persuading. And it happens when we have conversations with other people. Yeah. In our recent episode with Robert Livingston, the Harvard professors whose book is called The Conversation, we saw the powerful role that conversation can have in changing the dynamics of something as powerful as racism. Now, in this episode with Chuck, we zoom out a bit and we take a look at a broader implication of conversation in our work and our personal lives. Yeah, we focus on really fundamental and important aspects of life, like intentionality and the way our brains have formed to love stories. And he offers some practical tips on how to make the most out of the conversations that we have. So with that, Groovers, we invite you to sit back with a frothy draft of open mind and enjoy our conversation with Chuck Wisner. Chuck Wisner, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Well, thank you for having me. It is our pleasure. And we're going to get started with a speed round because maybe this is not super conversational with speed round, but we're going to give it a shot here. (laughs) Would you prefer to drink coffee or tea? Coffee. Mm, Okay. If you had a dinner guest, would you prefer to have dinner with your favorite athlete or favorite musician? Musician. Oh, you had to think about that one. That was you had well to, because because I had a third option. Oh, okay. Oh, oh you, all a, right. A musician okay. athlete combo or what? <laughs> uh, no, no. Uh, probably a te- like a teacher, like the Dalai Lama or something. Oh, like that. oh wow. I, that was, okay. And so, if you had the choice between that teacher, a musician, or an athlete, you would pick the Dalai Lama type person. Is that where you're going with that? Yeah. Yep. All right. Perfect. Dalai Lama would be a, that's, I, that he's never come across. Uh, we've never asked that question, but I think we should now. There you go. All right. Okay. So, <laughs> so which would be, which would be better for you? A vacation with a fixed itinerary or no itinerary at all? If I had to pick between those two, no itinerary. Okay. Yeah. That would have been my guess. <laughs> Are you one more that's a combination? Like you have some idea, you know, like you get there and do things or, and then, and a free flow from there. We've had lots of people who said, "Oh, I, I need to have that first two days fixed, but then I want it. I want it clear from there." So yeah. 
Well, my wife has trained me very well to make sure our flights are good and we have a place to stay. <laughs> and, and beyond that, it's like, let's see what happens. Yeah. We just okay. came back from Paris. Uh, the Lo- we were in the Loire Valley for five days and in Paris for four days. And so our trip was like that. Nice. One oh, fantastic, man. fantastic. Okay, that's a, that's a different conversation. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Are the stories we tell ourselves the truth about who we are, or is there more to it than just the stories we say? Well, the stories we live by and tell ourselves and tell others are, you know, they're essential to our identity. They're essential to the roles we play. So in any given day, I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm an advisor, I'm all those things. So they're really critical. But the distinction I like to make is that they aren't. They're beautiful and they serve us well until they don't. Mm. And when they don't serve us well, it's because we're attached to them. And when we're attached to them, then when we run against someone that has a different perspective or a different story, then our story doesn't serve us well because we either get defensive, we get afraid, and we, you know, we run or we fight or we freeze or whatever. So that's the distinction I like to make. Beautiful things. And also, there are stories that we have about ourselves and about others that don't serve us well. Does that answer your question? That, I think, uh, is exactly what I was looking for from, from basically the conversation <laughs> that we, I think we're going to have here. Because we're, we're, we're going to be right. talking to you about uh, your book, The Art of Conscious Conversation, Transforming How We Talk, Listen, and Interact. And I think that was one of the key things that, as you were talking about that, is this idea that we tell these stories about ourselves, we, but, you know, and they work well for most of the times, but sometimes they don't. And when they don't, we need to be rethinking them. So just to give our listeners a little bit of a, of a preview, can you tell us like, what was the impetus for this book? And, and what are you trying? What if there is, you know, the main kind of component out of it? I know it's the art of conscious conversation. Um, and so help us understand a little bit about what, what got you interested in writing the book and, and what you want people to take away from it. Okay. Long story, but <laughs> no, bring it on. Bring it on. That's what stories are. Here we go. So, so I was an architect in Boston for many years. I went to school for architecture in Boston and then I worked there and I was in a firm and I was, became a, an associate and then a partner. In that process, we had a partner who was an alcoholic. I might mention this in my introduction. And when we were seven people hanging out, it was not a problem. But when we grew to 40 people or more, then this partner became problematic for our clients and for us and our, and our employees. So we hired in help. We burned through two useless consultants that basically didn't tell us anything we didn't already know. Hmm. And um, which is the reputation of consultants. And then we hired in a woman. Her name was Linda Reed. And she came in and I was just like taken by what she did. She came in, she, she actually listened, asked a lot of questions. Uh, and then she came back to us with sort of an assessment about what was going on, what role each of us were playing, what the dynamics were between us. And helped us navigate conversations to get to the other end, to get to a solution that worked for everybody. And I was, I like, what she did felt like magic to me. I mean, I was a 
good architect. I knew what I was doing. But then she came in and this whole other world <laughs> opened up. And in a way, I think I was tri- it would not triggered. I was like attracted because since very young, I've had a philosophical and a psychological and a spiritual sort of interest in, in, in during my life. And this was like, wow, she's she's actually applying that to our our mess. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so that was a change in career. And then there's a story about how I lucked out because I gave up I gave up architecture. I quit, and then I started this new world, and I ended up being very lucky with who I connected with some programs through MIT. And over time we were doing, I was doing, we were doing great work with clients whose lives were really transforming with the work. And so Linda had done this work around the ontology of language, the power of language and who we are because of language. And I ended up doing that program. Mm. So now we skip ahead 10 years and I had a really lovely client at, um, Chrysler, who ended up at Toyota, um, who we have our cocktails one night, and he said, geez, I love all these things you're teaching us. It's emotional intelligence. It's about our stories. It's about conversations. But I don't know how to connect the dots. And that stuck with me. And then it took a while where, where I was, that was sort of like going around in my brain. And I think a year later, it it dawned on me that in my studies, there were these four types of conversations. And I realized that the structure of those four conversations held an, a lot of complexity and a lot of different practices because each conversation requires something different from us. And so then that just started. I said, well, there's, I've got to share this with people. And that, that's what started the book. That was a while back. And then I was diagnosed with leukemia. Whoa. And that was a life-changing event. So the book got put on hold. And I'm fine. I'm I'm actually am very blessed around all that. But then I picked it up again five years ago or so, and um, and here we are. That's there's so much to unpack there and to address. Le- le- leukemia being an amazing thing to survive. So congratulations mm. on that. I'm curious about you. You sounded like you talked about sort of arriving at these four quadrants of the of the of the conversation pretty easily. I was kind of wondering. Like whether was there a fifth or a sixth that ah just didn't quite make the cut or were there three and like no I really ought to have four but did it yeah. did it actually the, the, these four sort of manifest themselves pretty easily yeah they're sort of they're sort of embedded in the when you study language and and you look and you take it apart you sort of deconstruct there's only five speech acts that we could take any of our I'm simplifying a bit but there's five speech acts that we could take any of our sentences and our words and break it down into those speech acts. And then you take that and you go, okay, and how does that fit into the conversations? There is a conversation that I didn't include in the book that I sort of quietly embedded in some of my, my language. And that's a conversation for a conversation. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That sounds a bit meta. (laughs) Yeah. Well, if you think about it, if you you go in the workplace or or even at work or home, you know, you think about something, it feels the conversation you're about to have with your boss or with your spouse feels scary. And it's like you're opening a can of worms or you're asking for something or you're fearful of their response or you're worried they might hurt, emotions might get heated. A conversation is a conversation. It's like instead of jumping right in, you can say, you know, I, I've been feeling X and I have a concern about 
how we're doing this together, our concern about the outcome of our project, I would really like to have a little time to talk to you about that. Mm. And it's it sounds so simple, but what you're doing, you're actually tuning up, you're actually inviting the other person, you're giving them a chance to tune in. Like, oh, he wants to talk about that. And then everybody has a little time to tune in and tune up and get ready for the conversation. Can you tell us about the four different areas? Tell us a little bit about each of those so our listeners can kind of grasp what we're talking about here, because obviously we're we're talking Mm. about things and we're not telling them what we're talking about. And I think that's probably not a good part of a conversation. So anyway. Yeah. So that's that's a good place to to to. uh, Give an overview, I guess. Yeah. So the first conversation is storytelling. And that is a really, that's a very, very much a part of our lives, as we, you, we've talked about a bit. And I believe it's a fundamental conversation. Okay. I believe that the other conversations, while we're in them all the time, if you want to get better at the other conversations, which are collaboration, creative conversations, and commitment conversations, you have to start with looking at stories, whether it's your story or someone else's story, someone else's story, someone else is bringing into a conversation, because every interaction we go into, no matter what role we're playing, we are bringing a story to that conversation. I believe this. I judge something this way. I have standards that I think this should be done and not that should be done. And we actually bring all that in a very unconscious way because our stories are so comfy and so much part of who we are that we we can forget that it's a story and it's not everybody's story. Interesting. Yeah. And, and I think I just want to stop, stop you for just a sec before we get to the, the further one, because it reminds me that I think it was W.H. Auden said that I should just be eliminated from the language because everything that's coming out of us is I. Yes, right. Uh, Even when we're saying you, to a large degree, (laughs) we're still saying I, right? Yeah, well, we're judging somebody else based on our story. On our story, (laughs) right, right, right. Okay, excuse me. Okay, so. Yeah, no, that's great. And so so the value of stories is not to give stories up, but to become more conscious of the stories we hold, especially the ones that create tension or or you know, uncomfortable situations and relationships, the stories we hold, because we can, if we can take them apart, if we can get out of just saying, this is my story, but we need to understand there's thinking under the story. If I have a story, this shouldn't be happening. There's a bunch of stories underneath that story that I adopted from my family and my culture. Mm. Like what's right, what's yeah. wrong, what's good, what's bad, what's beautiful, what's not beautiful. Um, what's a good leader? What's a bad leader? What's a good father? What's a bad mother? So we we have those, but unless we sort of take the time to say, what's the thinking under my story? We we will stay uh, attached to our story. Does that make sense? It does. It does make sense. And I think part of what you're saying is that, as we talked about at the beginning, those stories serve us well for the most part until they don't. Mm-hmm. And so we have to be able to understand where those stories came from before we can let go of them when they start not serving us well. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And and it's not to say that the stories are in uh, old stories are inherently bad. uh, Right. Right. I I just want to elaborate on this idea that what you're urging listeners to do and readers to do is just 
it, be aware, examine those stories. Right. Sort examine of examine those stories. Yeah. Okay. We talked with Melanie Green, who's a professor at Ohio State University, and she does a lot on narrative and storytelling and talking about the immersion, narrative immersion and transportation into the narrative of actually in, in more of a story, story part, right? So when you're, mm-hmm. when you're telling people, when you're trying to convince them to uh, change a belief or different pieces is being able to get them into the story. Uh, and it's much more... Uh, impactful to drive that behavior change as well as a number of other things. And I think what I'm hearing you say in some of this, and correct me if I'm mistaken here, is that sometimes we get transformed into our own narrative without understanding the background of that. And so we're convincing ourselves all the time of this. And and we need to just step back from that and say, oh, wait, this is a story. Let's make sure I understand where the story is coming from. So where is it coming from? Yeah. And the, the other piece to it is that when we are, when our stories aren't serving us well, there's definitely emotions involved. Yeah. So if if we're upset with a colleague, or we're upset with a spouse, or a partner, or our kids, that they're the ones that that upset me the most, my children, my adult <laughs> children, that um, we have the emotion we react we react from from it. But interesting, if you say, okay, look, at I'm feeling angry. There's a story that's driving that anger that we're generally not conscious of. So if we take a minute to go, wait a minute, what's under this emotion? Why am I upset? What am I afraid of? What what happened that I think shouldn't have happened? It's those kind of stories that are under the emotion. And then we start really being able to unwind it and go, oh, I see. I, I have a belief that a leader shouldn't behave that way. Yeah. Do you think these this analysis or this ability to examine, does it come from a mindset or simply a, a self awareness? Uh, how do you, how do you think that someone should develop this ability? I think it's a really interesting process because I've worked with lots of people that I think were served in different ways to to be able to become more self aware. Some of the most some like let me I'll give an example. Some some of my hardest clients are engineers. Mm-hmm. They're trained to have the answer. They're trained to solve problems like, you know, yeah. in a linear fashion, very rational. And and they could look at some of this stuff and say it's all hocus pocus, it's just, you know, soft stuff. But when they get it, when they get when they get caught in a judgment and and I say, let's take that apart a little bit. And they really get it. They see that their ego is glued to their story and they're damning people without any self-reflection. And when they get it, they fall really hard. Mm. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. That is a big change. Kurt and I see sort of the same thing in, in the behavioral science world of people saying, no, I'm not biased. And then yes. you can walk them through an exercise and where they reveal to themselves that they do have biases and boom. Kind of in large degree, the same thing happens. Okay, so that that's the storytelling. What's what's the next the next story that we should talk about? So, let's say whether say say we're doing a business meeting, we're talking about strategy, or we're talking about a, a a stretch goal or something, and each of us came into that meeting uh, with different levels of experience, different levels of authority in the business, but we each come in with our position like a fist. Really, we feel really strongly. You know, a, a social uh, example might be better. Like we all could have a different opinion about a really strong opinion about gun control or about abortion, but we come in with a really op- hard fist. 
And the conversations ended up being a bunch of fists pushing on each other. Mm. Right. And, um, and of course we've all experienced that. The trick to the collaborative conversation is can we then come into that conversation with that open hand instead of the fist and go, here's my concerns. Here's how I'm thinking. Here's why I, I believe this is the right thing to do. Here's why, what I think success would look like. Then, then all of a sudden we learn from each other. There's a bit of vulnerability in that though, right? And I think that's maybe yeah. why some people don't. They come in with that closed fist because if the other person isn't reciprocal to that, they can use that information against you potentially. Again, maybe not happening, but it, there's that fear that that could happen. Is that, is that true? That's true. And it's also true that you might have that fear because you haven't done, done your work ah. to say, okay, I have my story. I understand my story. I'm willing to, to hear other people's side of the, uh, or other people's perspective. So there's, we haven't done our work, but also I think if you really do your work and you understand how conversations work based on stories and, and getting hooked on them and all that, and the fist fighting, if you do that work, opposite what you said, I think we have a leg up on a conversation. Ah, mm -hmm. Yeah. Because I can enter and go, wow, I can see this person is really upset. Let me stop. Because the other part of this conversation, the critical part is there's advocacy and there's inquiry. Yeah. And we generally are trained to be advocates mm. in a big way and win the argument and, and be, be, have the right answer. Well, you know, the poor second cousin inquiry is actually the most more artful, the more artful part of a conversation, you know, asking good questions, sincere questions. I really want to understand how you feel this way. That's the art of the collaborative conversation. It also sounds like if you're coming in, I, I love this idea. The metaphor is so beautifully descriptive of the open hand versus the closed hand. And with the open hand, it seems to imply, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Chuck, but I should also be open to hearing new information that might influence the way I feel. That's right. Yeah. See, if you if you have an open hand and you're realizing, look, my story isn't the truth and other people have valid uh, perspectives, then that that you are then entering with a more open mind. Right. Yeah. With an yeah. open fist equates to open mind. Closed fist equates to closed mind. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I love yeah. that. All right, so collaborative, we're we're moving there, and then the next one is creative. What helps help us understand creative? So there's a couple components here. Um, I think this is the toughest conversation because it's the least easily explained. Okay. Um, one, there's the, the part of this is re-educating uh, ourselves about how the brain works and re-engaging with our creative minds. So through the industrial revolution and all the progress we've made, the rational mind, the left side of the brain has been the ruler and the right side of the brain, which is more the creative, intuitive, flexible part has been a second cousin or, a, you know, a stepchild. Right. And there's actually a whole lot of research. Uh, I can't recall his name right now, but Someone is, he's written a book and he really says, you know, the right brain is the master and the left brain is a servant. 
And love that. another person, yeah. another person that we can quote is Einstein, who said, all my best ideas come when I'm out for a walk, not expecting, not, a, not looking for the answer, you know, and that's the intuitive piece. So there's that part. And then there's the part of learning to listen more deeply to ourselves, sort of like learning to listen, give ourselves time and space to actually hear, let things bubble up in our consciousness where we're not. We're not working so hard to find the answer. Well, I think I read in the book, one of my favorite things, I have a garden, too much garden for someone my age, (laughs) (laughs) but I have a garden and one of my favorite things as a practice is to go to the garden without a plan Ah. and just say, you know, just walk out there and then things start happening. You know, you know, some, some bush might say, Hey, I need to be trimmed or, there's weeding to be done, or my goodness, this tree needs to be cut down. I get the chainsaw out. But it's it's that allowing yourself to experience life unfolding without the rational, I have to do it this way, I have to do it now, I have to, you know, be on, I have to make things happen. Because for many of us, the issue of controlling our life and the issue of being the authors of everything that happens, if you really start looking into that. That's not the case. So learning to listen uh, beyond our sense of control is a very, it's again, it's a widening of our mindscape. It's a widening of our ability to take in information and let things see things that that otherwise we might not see. I, I love that. When you were talking about this idea of really letting the creative be the master and the rational mm-hmm. sort of being the the servant is such a great metaphor. And I think about the number of times I've been in band rehearsals where we had a, we had a gig coming up and we were needed to rehearse that set and my brain was just in the rash I was trying to put the rational in the master right I'm trying to yes. trying to make something force fit that really didn't necessarily need to be we were going to get through all the material you know we right. we had the time blocked out we had the discipline to do it but I was just so driven to like, just start getting at it. And that ended up sort of self-destructing after 20 minutes or so. It's like, well, wait a minute, let's just warm up. <laughs> let's actually, you know, let's, let's tune the instruments, you know, yeah, mean, basically right, right. like, like, let's just relax a little bit and, and let the garden speak to us. Let, you know, we're, right. we're in the same room to do the same thing. So yeah. Let's and I guarantee happen. if people, if people experiment with that, I drive my family crazy and sometimes my client, because when they're all tensed up, I, my, one of my sayings is, relax, something will happen. Well, mm. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people don't like that, but it, it's guaranteed that something will happen. But um, so music and jazz is like that, you know, really good jazz musicians, you know, they, they get together. And it's for me as a drummer, it's not about being a solo drummer. It's not about, you know, outshining. Anyone. It's about listening. It's about, whoa, what's, what's that bass player doing? And are we in sync? And, oh, the piano player is taking a risk, so I think I'll move to the hi-hat. It's that kind of total, total listening. And then, you know, you're, you, generally your body will just respond. It's interesting. It's about being in the moment and adapting to what that moment is requiring. I mean, the, the jazz right. example is perfect to that, right? You said, oh, the, the pianist is doing this, thus I am going to adapt 
I'm not going to just continue with my, you know, whatever beat that I'm doing because that no longer fits with the moment that we are now in. And if I do, it throws everybody off. And that's that's what I'm hearing you say in in conversation is being able to, again, going back to the story, understanding what is the story, where I'm coming from, coming with that open hand to be collaborative. And now it's about, all right, so now the open hand is out there. Now let's just pay attention to what's going on so that we can yes. create and and be something come come out of whatever it is that we're we're working from. Yeah, and these two these two conversations, collaborative and creative, are are like joined at the hip. Mm-hmm. Because if we're in a really open minded conversation, I'm learning from you, you're learning from me, and we're going, wow, I never thought of it that way, right? The next thing that happens is there's ideas coming in into the room that said, "Oh, we didn't ha- we don't have to do it that way. We could do it this way." Yeah. And and but it's it's only happens in that space of of open-minded collaboration and open-minded allowing ideas to bubble up in that space. Yeah. But the fourth conversation, commitment is different. Yeah. That's right. Tell us briefly about that. Okay, so I have a little bit of a uh, of something to say before that, because you know, so far we know about. I think of a spiral, like a spiral opening, and when we're, when I'm stuck in my story, I'm at the bottom of the spiral because mm. I, I think this is what the world should be, mm. and this is my story. But as we get better at opening our stories, then we and we open up to collaborative conversations. We're going up the spiral. And then we go to creative conversation and we're wide open. It's like quantum physics. There's so many opportunities out here. Can we see them? Mm. And then the commitment conversation is a collapse. (laughs) Yep. It collapses back down to a point that says, okay, who's doing what by when, right? Yeah. Because it is is the decision, the action conversation. So what I wanted to say before I do too much about that is that I – what I see all the time is what I call a conversational bypass. And the bypass is we love our stories and we love the action conversation, the commitment conversation. So you're in a meeting and people are telling stories. The boss might have his position. Of course, his voice gets more authority than anybody else because that's, that's another story about authority. And all of a sudden someone says, or he says, or she says, okay, what are we going to do? And then we make a decision and we move on. Many times to revisit it two weeks later because we made a bad decision. (laughs) But what happened there is we bypassed the two middle conversations. We Ah. bypassed collaboration. We bypassed creativity and went right from storytelling to commitment. And the, the response I often get is we don't have time for this. Yeah. And I say, you know what? You don't, have time not to do this because how many bad decisions have you made how many decisions have you made without the right information or without listening to other perspectives and discovering other solutions Mm -hmm. so we're not talking about days give your team 15 minutes to chew on something (laughs) yeah (laughs) before you make the damn decision it it sounds like yeah. such a radical idea. Let's just take fifteen minutes. <laughs> it, in, in in corporate worlds where where the hour long meeting is dead, that 30, yeah. 30 minute meetings are, are the standard. 
now and right. and to say an extra 15 minutes like oh my god you're going to expand the meeting oh by 50 <laughs> percent yeah well my my the, my other take is that meetings are so badly done so how many meetings are we in that it's just storytelling this is what my team is doing and this is why, why it's important and we're going around the table and everyone's bored and everyone's on their damn phone right we can make it much more exciting just give a team a hot topic to chew on for 15 minutes and that meeting will come alive. Yeah. 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 True. If it's okay with you guys, we've got to get to music. We, we started this a little <laughs> bit. You've just been teasing music. And I feel like I got to learn a little bit more about your, your drumming life. And is your, you, you said you're in a garage band, but is has your yeah. drumming is, is it primarily a, a rock based thing or a jazz based thing or uh, what? Yeah. Yeah, I, will, I love to answer that question, but I want to. I think I shortchanged you guys on the answer to commitment. Oh, so, I'm yes. sorry. Excuse me. I'm sorry. Be, because I went. Because I went. We, did, we I did talked about the bypass. Bi- yeah. I, I, yeah, I did. <laughs> bypass, a bypass the commitment. There God, we go. I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm I'm just anxious. <laughs> yeah. So I'll be short because I know you guys are monitoring time. I trust. So the commitment conversation is a, a point of we're okay. Now we're making a decision. And we're back to the bottom of the spiral. We now have a story about what we should do. And it means if I do X, then you can do Y, and then that person can do that. So commitments are a string of promises. It's like if I make a a promise to you to buy something or to do a project, because you made a commitment to me to pay me a certain amount. And then when I come up with the solution or the, the successful project, that allows us to make a commitment to someone else to do something or to hire someone. It's like this string of promises, which is a beautiful thing. However, we do this conversation in a very sloppy way. Mm. We make promises, we make commitments without a lot of consciousness. Two reasons. We move fast and we sort of addicted to yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, we have the cultural social programming that says, sure, I can take care of that or no problem, or, you know, and so we make a commitment like without even thinking about it. Mm-hmm. But when someone makes a request, can you do X, X? And I go, sure. That request is far more complicated than can you do X? Mm. There's timing involved. There's what does the sex success look like? There was, how was the request made? There's, I mean, it's just, there's like, I think there's six components. So the commitment conversation is more complicated than we're aware of. And you can actually, again, you can deconstruct that conversation and go, okay, where am I on this, on this chart here? And how can I slow it down? So that in the end, we make a better decision. I love that. It's interesting. And there's a piece of me where I sit there and I'm thinking about what you're, you're explaining and how do I approach conversations, particularly with my team when we're going into work and various different elements? And what comes out of that is that oftentimes I'll go in and I want to do the conversational bypass because I just want to get yeah. to the end and the story yeah, and the commitment yeah. that I've told them to do. And actually, it's been really interesting because then if there are times, though, that I realize that the team is pushing back on that. They're either they're coming with the open hand or however you want to right. describe it, and it opens everything else up. And so I think in, in right. that kind of environment, it's really helpful to be able to kind of think through the steps of this 
because now I can go, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm shortchanging this and I need to make sure that I add that extra 15 minutes in so that we have those right. really crucial conversations. And we talk about, you know, we get to that collaborative part and we talk about the creative part so that we can come to a commitment that we can all align around and that we don't have to come back in three, four weeks and relook right. at that. So, yeah. Yeah. And what you're talking about is one of the major, I guess, barriers to these kind of more open conversations is the how we think of authority inside of hierarchies. Yeah. Because most leaders don't realize that their voice is 10 times more powerful than they think. Yeah. I call it the power of 10, you know, the leader says, oh, the example I have in my book is what does a pink riata look like? And they're walking down the hall to lunch and everyone's laughing. And four months later, he goes into the the confidential design room and there's a pink riata. He asked a question. No one said, well, wait a minute, Dave, do you want to see it? Do you want a picture of it? This is before computers. Should we draw a model? You know, but that voice of authority is so much that like in your situation, only if you back off and go, what do you guys think will you get the participation you want? Yeah. Right. And so I can say to any leader that that's have struggling with hearing from their team, put your position on behind you, put it on the side table. Don't offer your position up. Ask the team, what do you guys think about this here? This is a hot subject. How are we going to do this? I want to hear every perspective. I'll go around the room and go, what do you think? And what do you think? And what do you think? Because as soon as he's, he or she says, this is what we should do, the, the room closes down. Yeah. And of course, they, that room needs to be uh, a space of psychological safety in order for those people to, to have that. It, they, it needs to be the That's open right. fist, the open hand, uh, in, right. in, in not just a, sort of a metaphorical way, but a really strong psychological way as well. That's right. Yeah. And the leader who is more aware of his stories and this whole process of different conversations is going to create the psychological safety or the emotional safety, the psychological safety, because because they're approaching it humbly without having to be the, the main guy that has the answer or main gal. I keep missing up there, but the hero of the story. Yeah, they don't the have hero. to be the hero of their own story. Hero. Yeah. Right. Very good. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. All right, Mr. Hulahan. Bring in your musical questions now. <laughs> I want to learn more about about Chuck's musical background and uh, the yeah. genres that you play in and you love to listen to. So I started when I was seven. I think I had I had an assertive mother who was tired of me drumming my fingers and got me lessons early on. Um, so I was trained classically. So I, you know, I, I don't know if people know like piano scales. For drummers, there's 26 rudiments. Yeah. Uh, and and so that's when you're trained classically, you learn those 26 rudiments. And they have funky names like the paradiddle and the flamacue and, and stuff like that. <laughs> so in musical terms, you know, uh, it, for layman, you know how to read music as a drummer. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. 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 So I, I learned, played classically. I can read, char- I, I can read uh, music. Uh, I also played the piano, uh, which is a percussion instrument because anything with a hammer is a percussion instrument. And then, so I, I was very lucky. I had, I, w- I came from a small town in Pennsylvania and for, I, I just a blessing that school had an amazing band director. And so I just was, that was my life partly because my family life was a little messy 
And so that was my escape. And I just immersed in music. And I mean, I, I mean, this was unusual because we had a percussion ensemble in high school mm. when I was a junior and senior. There were only two in the whole country. And that means you fill a stage with all the percussion instruments, you know, and then you have a, some somewhat of an orchestra. But it, the whole concert is about the percussion. And we would invite people like Joe Morello, who was a drummer on Take Five with uh, yeah. Dave, yeah. Dave, Dave Brubeck. Brubeck. Yeah. So he would be our guest for the weekend. We would study with him. So that was really amazing. And then I wanted to go into music. I wanted to have that to be my career. And I got bad counseling. My only uh, mentors were people who were band directors and music directors. And I already was playing jazz. I already recorded music, rock and roll music. I was already on TV. And so I thought, wait a minute, why am I going to Penn State to be a band director? There's so much more. And I didn't go to college right away because of that. And then the draft happened, the Vietnam draft happened. Mm -hmm. And I ended up having a bad number on the lottery. I was the first first year of the lottery. And because of my connections in the music world, I ended up auditioning for and and getting into the Air Force National Guard band. Oh, well, that sounds like a good gig. (laughs) That was a good gig. Yeah, it was a good gig, but it lasted seven years. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, and then and then it just, you know, after that I was in that band, but I also I was also in jazz trios and rock and roll bands uh during that time. And, and, so, and so the band I'm with now is a rock and roll band. It is. Our favorite cover is Delbert McClinton. I don't know if you who he is. He's a love him. Yeah, he's a great blues guy out of Texas. We, we oh god, love that Delbert McClinton. And uh, what's the tunes that you like to cover most from Delbert? Oh boy, now you're really testing my memory because the way I I sing also, and it's sort of like oh we're going to do this song, um, and it's not until the music starts that I just oh yeah here we are. And <laughs> no, I, 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 I get I get that. But, yeah, I, I, yeah, I get that. Yeah, I'm, yeah. Um, so we we but we do a bunch of his his work. Oh God, I just. Uh, I didn't get exposed to him until I was in high school and had, mm-hmm. uh, there was a, a local band in the, in the, I grew up in St. Louis and they, they did just a couple of Delbert McClinton covers and was just like, my God, how, how have I missed this incredible talent, this great songwriter? And then yeah. just to hear him yeah. play him and sing him and you think, oh man, that guy's got soul. He's got. Yeah. He was really, he's really something. Yeah. I think he might be retiring. He's, he's an older feller. <laughs> yeah, I, I would expect so. I haven't kept up with his career, but uh, but I yeah, certainly know that. Yeah. Thanks for asking. I mean, maybe that was too much music information. But uh, yeah. you, you have just made Tim's entire week, so <laughs> uh, don't don't ever you know doubt that on on the on the music. Tim would love to be talking about drumming and and people <laughs> that I have no clue who you guys are talking about and the different yeah, uh, yeah. drumming styles that you do for, for ages. But, um, you yeah. know, Chuck, thank you. This has been really, it's been a, it's been a very great conversation, I would have to say. And so we appreciate that. Been. And yeah, uh, thank yeah. you very much. Thank you very much. Thanks. A totally enjoyable conversation. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I share ideas on what we learned from our discussion with Chuck, have a free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our conversational brains. I was actually, this time I was actually listening to you thinking, I think conversational would be a good idea. And it's the very first time 
in 300 episodes that are more <laughs> that I actually thought of the same word that you thought. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I thought of the word conversational. We're, we're finally getting on that groove where we can, you know, answer each other's whatever. You were supposed Sen- to say sentences. <laughs> we are not on that groove. <laughs> Okay, maybe it's not that much of a groove. Maybe it's just good luck. Uh, anyway, well, we, we'll keep working on that where we can answer each other's sentence. Oh, there you go. Question. Yes, you, we got to work on timing, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Chuck's conversation, A, this episode, what we do is conversation. You know, I realize that. Yeah. Yeah. On this podcast, we have conversations with folks and, and from those conversations, we hopefully are able to take some insights out and to share those insights with our listeners. But really what this podcast is, is it's a big, long conversation with lots of different people. I love that framing, actually. I think that that's fantastic. I've always liked the idea of having a conversation with a guest rather than interviewing them. Interviewing just seems so, I don't know. It's in the the documents that we send out to the people that we do talk to, right? It's like that we have a conversational form. You know, we like to have conversation. We are not gotcha journalists. That's one of the things that we 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 put into all that That's free true. pre-read material. So maybe it's intentional. Maybe we are intentional about the oh. type of conversations that we're having. Oh, oh, so you're leading into this idea about being intentional about our conversation. Right? <laughs> it's one of the things that Chuck <laughs> talked about, right? This idea that too often we just go with the flow and, and oftentimes, particularly as we think about conversations, we have to understand and be intentional about them and understand what type of conversation that you're having. This is one of the things that I thought Chuck did a very nice job in the book. I don't know if we really got into it as much in the podcast here. But this idea of the four different styles and kind of either how, how things go in these conversations, the storytelling component where mm-hmm. we tell stories that underlies all of conversations, right? I mean, even we, we are all about these stories, but then collaborating. So you have conversations to collaborate, to work together. Um, you, have, you, you have conversations to be creative or to create stories to build, to explore, Oh yeah, you know, yeah. but then this, um, the, the, the last one is a committing this understanding what we are agreeing to making that commitment. And I, you know, I think if I was to dig into any of these where I think particularly business leaders miss is, is this one, right? This idea that we need to align, uh, around, a commitment and making sure that we don't overlook the step. I couldn't agree more, Kurt. I think that that commitment is a, a fantastic conversation in the business world. Chuck kind of alluded to this. We didn't get in, again, we didn't get into it enough, but this idea of asking questions and using the commitment as a way to, of course, it, it narrows the funnel, right? It's, it's, it's the end of the hopper, you know, kind of in, in his, in his graphic design. But we shouldn't speed past this. We should take time to really make sure that we are aligned, that we really understand each other, that we're clear. And that could require more questions, maybe require more ex- explanation. But I think it's a very important thing for us to do. I'm, I find it important every day. Let me just, let me and, just say that. And I think there's clarification that needs yeah, to happen yeah. in this because we live in our own heads. The idea that when I'm talking, I'm talking and hearing my words resonate in my own head. And I know the intention that I have behind those words and what I'm implying. Right. 
But when you're listening to me, you're listening in your own head and your interpretation of those words. And though that interpretation that you have and the intention that I have may not be the same thing. And, And yet we would assume that we understand each other because we've had a conversation, but we haven't clarified the understanding of that. And so it's sometimes it's about rephrasing what um, you just heard and what you took from that. And so then you have, okay, so I, what I heard you say is this. And then people can go, oh, no, I, what I meant was why. Or as a result of this, you want me to do X is another thing. Or as a result of this, I want you to do these things. Are you are you good with that? Kind of making sure that we get those clarification questions that you talked about. It, it reminds me of uh, that little game that you can play if, let, let's say you have the happy birthday song in your mind and you tap it out. Oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah and, right? And you're, you're singing the song in your head, but you're not singing it out loud. You're just tapping and you think, well, this is going to be so easy. Dot, 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 dot. Like you're going to think anybody can get to that, right? Because because I can hear it in my head. I'm tapping it out to you. So, of course, you're going to get it. Yeah. No way. Like <laughs> you know, basically, basically no one, you know, can get whatever song you're tapping out because all they're hearing is the tapping. Yeah. You're hearing the whole symphony in your head and all they're hearing is the tapping. And I think that that's a, a good metaphor to think about when it comes to this conversation is that we we are thinking of the whole symphony and basically we're, I mean, we're doing more than just tapping most of the time, but, <laughs> but still the words are, could be incomplete. We have yes. to take more time to be thoughtful and to be intentional. Yeah. About it's, it. it's funny you bring that up. I actually went to, I saw Adam Grant speak one time and he had the entire audience of 12,000 people, right? Pair up and do that exact, uh, you know, exercise <laughs> The only people that got it were, we will rock you with Queen. Oh, yeah. Especially if there's the hand clap. Yeah. And yeah. I think that was probably out of it. But that was that was the only yeah. one. So, yeah. but, okay. So, yeah, we need to understand the symphony behind people's words. And I love that idea. So what else? What else about Chuck? I loved Chuck's metaphor of opening our hand and our minds to conversation. That's just so brilliant. It's a, it, first of all, not, it's not only a, a, a beautiful metaphor, but it reminds me of our conversation that we had um, with a neuroscientist who was talking about how we talk with our hands because there is something expressive about that. It doesn't mean, it, it, in some ways, we have the words. It doesn't mean anything that we move our hands, or, but, but actually it does. It's connected unconsciously to the way that we talk. So when we open our hands, we are literally connecting to that message to our brain and opening our minds. I think it's a really cool thing to, to physically do when you're in a conversation is to not grip your fist tightly. It's to actually open it up and, and be open. I wish listeners could see us when we're doing this because I am <laughs> much not. more animated <laughs> typically than you are way, with my hands and movements and different pieces. And you're much you more are. stoic and kind of reserved and thoughtful. But uh, it's... When you said that, I'm like going, oh, maybe that's why I use my hands. I don't really think I use my hands a lot, but you know, I, you do. I realize I, I do. All right. Yeah. All right. The last piece I kind of want to touch on with Chuck's, this great episode that we had with him, is he talked a, a little bit about some of the traps that we fall in when we're, when we're having conversations. So that we move too fast. Again, yeah. we just want to get to the end. We want to get to that punctuation point 
And we need to elaborate. We need to add adjectives. We need to build on the story. We need to ensure that there's understanding. But we're often just moving way too quickly trying to, you know, get to the end of the book. What's the conclusion, you know, and not taking enough time to build up the reasons in between. And then the other piece that I was really thought was interesting, there's a couple of things, but one was that we're addicted to yes. Which is exactly the opposite of where people like Robert Livingston and Kwame Christian are coming from when it says sit down and ha- or, or even some of the conspiracy theorist psychologists that we've had. It's, it's about being open. It starts with having a compassionate, curious conversation that, that isn't about making a point. If we wanted to make a point, we just throw out all the facts. And of course, and we know how effective that is. So this is an opportunity to improve our conversations by setting aside this addiction to yes and thinking about our curiosity, about exploration, about collaborating, about being creative and, and uh, you know, and and then finding, well, once we figure out what we're going to align on, then get to yes, then take our time to to figure out how to align and, co- and in our collaboration. And this is a piece, I think, and I don't have the psychology specific research behind it, but I believe this is true. So we'll have to do some back end research on this and then put in the show notes like disclaimer, what Kurt said at the end is totally wrong. But this idea that our brains are wired to agree with what people, other people are saying. And so even if it is false, our tendency is to go, okay, and our brains believe that. And this idea that we're addicted to yes isn't just about saying yes to inquiries from people or saying yes to do something. That's a part of it. And that's a big part within business and organizations. We say yes too often and then we get overloaded with work and we should be saying no more. But it's also saying yes to what the content is saying and that this compassionate curiosity, this keeping your open hand is saying you need to push back on how your own brain is interpreting what people are saying with some skepticism, with a little bit of, why do I know that's true? Why do I know that is a yes? Why do I know that's something that I should be concerned about? And I know my natural tendency is to, you know, somebody gives an argument and I go, oh yeah, that's great. And then somebody else gives a counter argument. I go, oh wait, that's good too. And then it's, a, you know, and it's, a, I'm like, a, I'm following a tennis match and I'm, I, I'm just going, oh, this is, no, oh yeah, over here. And I think that's a natural tendency that we all have. It really is. And that's a critical trap that we fall into is of course, believing our own bullshit uh, too much. <laughs> but the, the last part about this uh, traps is, and I, so glad to hear this because this is something I've has been a part of my own career and been following leaders for a long time and noticing how how leaders in organizations talk is that their voices can be 10 times louder than everyone else that when they say oh I think this is a really good idea you've got you know 20 people in the room who are like okay that's what we're going to do then yeah. we just we just heard the leaders say that's a good idea or I'm not so sure that that's going to work. Then you got 20 people in the room going, okay, now we got to figure out how to justify it or move on to the next thing. Those messages are very, very loud and they have a lot of impact on people. And leaders especially need to be really intentional about the kinds of conversations that they have and the way that they frame those conversations. The words that they use are important. It goes back to Vanessa Bonds when we talked with her. She said Absolutely. the 
same thing that with great power comes great responsibility to paraphrase Spider-Man. But this idea of, of, as a leader, you do. I mean, the conversations that you have, people are listening much more intently and what you say offhandedly or jokingly or in a side comment can change how, you know, a vast big part of your organization all of a sudden is moving in a different direction because of an offhand comment that you made or a joke that you thought everybody understood. Again, going back to, did you or did everybody understand? I was joking. I wasn't really meaning that and all those different things. So, all right. Well, that probably is a good place to wrap this episode up. What do you think? I say yes. Yeah. I, yeah, I think we I, had I, a pretty good conversation on this, don't you, Tim? Oh, I agree. I agree. I, I think that there's a, a lot to take away from this and, you know, how we need to be aware of our conversations unfold and and the aspects that we can inject into them. All those things, I think, can help us better both in our business lives and our personal lives. Agreed. Agreed. So, listeners, we want to thank you for sharing this conversation with us. Uh, you know, you, you are, you're, you're, you're part of this conversation, particularly if you go out and talk about this conversation online or in another format where we can actually have a back and forth coming with you. So we would love for you to go out. And, and another way is, is you can start your own conversation with others by talking about behavioral growth. <laughs> okay, so we don't have to be so subtle about that. Yeah, actually, we think that that would be a great conversation starter uh, <laughs> for a pretty good story. It's a, it is a good story, right? It you is. can start that. I mean, come on, you can have that conversation with a friend, a coworker, someone you just met on the train. Right. Oh, on the train. Yeah, of course. Right. Okay. We're pushing it a bit, yeah. <laughs> right. but please do have a conversation with, with other people about the show. I mean, honestly, we would really love that if you would, and it can show, this would be a great show of support for us uh, as we continue to grow and we continue to expand the insights that we bring to you. So we would really appreciate it. Yeah. And with that, we hope that this week you go out and have a conscious conversation that makes you groove.